Welcome to Local Motion, a weekly KVNF production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. I'm your host, Cassie Knust. Today, we're looking at local water issues, some new infrastructure projects, and conservation efforts. Today, we join Steve Hale, the president of the Chavano Conservation District in Montrose, to hear about some water conservation efforts in our region. More and more emphasis is going to be placed on how we manage water and natural resources up here in the Upper Basin. Later in the show, we'll hear from Miles Graham with Project 7, our region's water supplier. They're currently working on a backup drinking water treatment plant in Kelowna, just on the outskirts of Montrose. Water is life, and no matter who you are and where you are, if you don't have water, you don't have anything. Finally, we'll hear about a program equipping Indigenous youth to help restore and protect lands and waterways. From KVNF, it's Local Motion. It's great to have you here, Steve. Thanks for joining me in the studio. Let's first talk about the Chavano Conservation District. What is it and what do you focus on? Sure. Appreciate the chance to be here, Cassie. And the conservation districts are set up across the nation and go. they trace back to the 1930s when uh, the Dust Bowl was really creating havoc uh, across the country with drought years during those uh, that decade. And it was determined that uh, these soil resources, uh, different natural resources, needed to be conserved in better ways. So they divided up the whole nation in conservation districts, and it's based on watersheds, typically. And so our district here has now blended with the San Miguel Basin. And so our district takes in over 2.5 million acres from basically the Blue Mesa Reservoir all the way to the Utah border, north towards Delta and south towards the uh, top of Red Mountain Pass. So it's in in a pretty big district geographically. But these districts were set up to be um, volunteer board members by landowners and producers on agricultural lands primarily. And so it's volunteer-driven, and we work with government agencies like NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and other partners, uh, the state, and we, we collaborate with a lot of people to bring conservation practices on the ground. What are some common misconceptions that you might get as a conservation district? <laughs> well, that we even exist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we've been at this for decades. Uh, my grandfather was one of the charter members here locally. And, you know, so much work gets done behind the scenes that no one really does notice. Uh, They take for granted a lot of times how beautiful our valley is with irrigated croplands, with uh, our beautiful sweet corn farms or alfalfa and pastures. And so a lot of the improvements over the years have been brought forth by the conservation district in in conjunction with cost share dollars um, to improve water management and deliver irrigation water more efficiently or to have wildlife ponds or to have um, a better management system for uh, grazing. All of it encompasses what we consider conservation, but a lot of it gets done because of the conservation district working as a liaison between landowners and the government in in a lot of cases. Very interesting. And what would be Walk me through some of the differences between what conservation looks like in an area like Montrose compared to Delta. Well, each district has um, a focus of their 
you know, different resource concerns that are based on, uh, a, a, typically we have an annual meeting where we invite producers, landowners to come. And, and at our annual meeting, we have a, a survey form and we ask them, what are your resource concerns based on, you know, is it drought? Is it, uh, you know, improved, uh, uh, methods of pest management like weeds? Is it, uh, all, all kinds of things. So recently in the last several years, I'd say, Soil health has become a big priority in our district. It's it's raised up to uh, as as much of a priority as water management, and so soil health is a has been identified by our district landowners as, as they want to know more and and have more practices available to improve soil health, and that really is a distinguishing factor between districts where the district in Delta may not have the same set of priorities based on their landowners and resource concerns. So it's really cool that up here in Montrose, we've really uh, jumped on that soil health bandwagon and really developed a lot of programs for landowners and, and uh, really promote things through uh, education. So that's a big push for us is education. And we have uh, involvement with uh, the uh, and collaborate with the, the uh, Soil Health Committee that is a uh, collaboration with Valley Food Partnership. And we have the big event in January at the, the convention center. So that is a big event where hundreds of people come and we have virtual attendance to two-day event. We have nationally known speakers come in on soil health and regenerative agricultural practices. It's a great ed, uh, educational process. And then we have so many m- much more. We, we actually employ a district manager uh, Penny Bishop, and we employ uh, an education director, Mendy Stewart, and then we have other staff members. They do a tremendous job every day of the week, uh, really helping put all these things together. And for our listeners who may not understand the ins and outs of our soil health here in, the, in Montrose County, in our area, uh, how would you explain to them the situation in, in Montrose? Well, Soil health, it, it's, a, it's kind of a buzzword lately, but it's, uh, it encompasses a lot of, of uh, practices that growing up, I just knew that, hey, if you wanted a good crop, you should uh, take care of your soil first. But it, uh, it goes back to the old days. They, they used uh, manure from cattle and their livestock. They used uh, cover crops. They used uh, what they call green manure crops. They, because back in those days, they didn't have uh, commercial fertilizers and pesticides, herbicides available. So they had to take care of their soil, um, more of a natural process. So we're kind of getting back to that in so many of these, uh, newer techniques that, that actually capture, uh, getting organic matter back in the soil. That's number one thing. Uh, if you want to conserve moisture, uh, 1% increase in organic matter in the top few inches of soil will save 27,000 gallons per acre. So it's an enormous uh, thing if we can just increase organic matter. And then we can talk about micro and macronutrients and all of it comes together. But so much can be developed with good soil health that impacts other things like drought resilience. And speaking of drought, you know, we are going through this climate crisis and we're experiencing depleting resources. How has this affected your work? Well, I think more people are aware of this. Uh, you know, certainly with uh, two or three really hard drought years, 20, 21, 22, extremely hard drought years, our, our reservoir levels were going down, 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 and, and people were pretty tuned into it. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have pretty much a very short-term memory because 
2023 came through the winter, really great record snowfalls. Uh, we had uh, full reservoirs again, and everybody kind of forgets about, oh yeah, we're in a big drought cycle. And it does impact a lot of things like uh, the mandates that occur downstream. We have to comply with compact, the Colorado River Compact that is uh, demanding more and more water uh, downstream to help fill, refill the uh, Lake Powell and Mead and uh, the insatiable appetite of water in California and Arizona and places. So more and more emphasis is going to be placed on how we manage water and natural resources up here in the upper basin. So our conservation district is very, very critical to get the information and practices out there to maintain agricultural production, maintain water rights on this agricultural lands that we have here. And it's not just agri uh, irrigated agriculture, but it's how to maintain uh, livestock operations with grazing rights. It's how to, how to keep the agricultural community intact. Um, and, and so with limited resources, it becomes a real challenge and we, we all got to work together. Yeah, and what are some examples of ways that you are focusing in on these conservation efforts? Well, so the a lot of the uh, programs that are out there, we're, we're big promoters of things like the STAR program from the state of Colorado passed a law that allows for funding of soil health through an incentive program called STAR. It basically gives producers an incentive to do practices and gets compensation back to them to offset some of the costs for uh, doing these newer techniques like cover crops, uh, soil amendments, uh, composting, things like this. And so there's a transition cost. And so the state recognizes that that is somewhere an area that that really needs to be focused on. So they're using conservation districts around the state to implement this um, program. So that's one area that we can help producers by just getting them uh, a, a little bit of reimbursement for the good work that they're doing. The district covers such a diverse uh, area, like I said, from, from basically Blue Mesa Reservoir all the way to the Utah border. We've got a wide range of agricultural producers and landowners with different goals, different uh, operations, and, and, but there's a common thread of helping them understand that, hey, by, by doing, treating your soil better and, and doing soil health practices, you're going to have less need for irrigation and perhaps even less need for inputs like chemicals and, and fertilizer, commercial fertilizers. And, and guess what? We can also bring to the table neat techniques for livestock uh, grazing patterns, like intensive rotational grazing, uh, new techniques like with the uh, collars that they put on cattle now to do virtual fencing. All of this can be uh, part of the conservation dialogue. Very interesting. And I, I know you mentioned that you have several projects underway right now. Can you walk me through any of those? Well, we have the STAR program and, and we have uh, a lot of producers. We're, we're actually signing up some new producers for this next round. And, and uh, so we're actively involved with that. We have our district right now just received a matching grant from the state of Colorado uh, for educational purposes primarily. And so we're gonna be really ramping up that education component and getting out to the schools. And we have a great uh, event in the spring with down on the River Bottom Park, uh, the River uh, Festival. We have hundreds of kids come through in the spring to learn about conservation, a lot of different partners. That's a tremendous uh, thing that Mindy, Mel uh, Mindy Stewart puts on. And then we have, the, like I said, the Food and Farm Forum and, and the Soil Health con uh, Conference joining together now with the big January 
uh, event. That's a big educational thing, too, that we're part of. And then we have tours. We have uh, uh, soil health tours. We have all kinds of fun events throughout the course of the year. So I'd encourage you to look up Shavano Conservation District. We have a great website. Get connected to us. If you're a landowner, uh, come and ask us questions because we can sure point you in the right direction. Do you have anything else you'd like to share that I didn't think to ask you? Well, I, I just really appreciate the chance to get the, the message of conservation out there and, and point out that, that we do have limited acres uh, and it's getting more and more pressured from development and other land uses. And if we intend to have this community of, of local food or, or regional community of, of uh, agricultural producers, and, and it really makes the valley the... Uh, a, a wonderful place to live. So quality of life is all plays into it. And uh, so we, we really want to maintain that uh, bigger, broader picture of how this land is used. We just heard from Steve Hale, the president of the Chavano Conservation District in Montrose, about some water conservation efforts in our region. You can learn more about the Chavano Conservation District at chavanocd.org. Up next, we hear from Miles Graham with Project 7, our region's water supplier. Project 7 is working on some new water infrastructure in Kelowna that would provide a backup drinking water treatment plant. Miles, can you tell me about the proposed water treatment plan? Why is it happening and why is it important for our area? The thing about drinking water is that when a lot of folks think about what it takes to, to put into the, the clean and secure drinking water that comes out of our taps, the critical infrastructure behind it can often be forgotten. So when Project 7 Water Authority was formed in the late 70s, the local governments and regional water providers came together to share costs to build the, the critical treatment infrastructure for our regional water system. And right now, currently, the 50,000 people in the Delta, Montrose, and Uray County area um, rely on one drinking water treatment plant and one source for all of our regional drinking water supply. So this project is to build a second treatment plant so that we have a backup um, to make sure that our region is never without drinking water. Why did Project 7 choose Kelowna as the site? That's a great question. So actually, when the Ridgeway Reservoir was commissioned back in the mid-80s. There have always been plans for a second regional drinking water facility um, on the south end of the Project 7 Water Authority service area. So initially back in the, the late 80s, there were plans for this treatment plant at the dam site um, in Uray County. And um, over the years, that, that those plans have evolved, and we actually owned a smaller parcel on Spud Hill Road um, in unincorporated Uray County. And the current site that Project 7 owns is just south of Kelowna, about a mile from the Montrose County line in, in Uray County. That site's a little bit bigger. It gives us more flexibility to design the facility. And it also works really well from a, a hydrological perspective. We're able to bring water through a pipeline from the Ridgeway Dam into the, the drinking water treatment facility. And in doing that, by using gravity to bring it downhill, we're actually able to produce enough hydroelectric power on site to, to power a significant portion of the planned facility. I know that there's a timeline for the project. So where, where are you at right now and what progress has been made so far? 
right now we are moving into the design build phase for the project. So um, just last year, the Project 7 Board of Directors comprised of representatives from the city of Delta, the town of Olathe, the city of Montrose, Tri-County Water District, Minokan and Chapita Water District, um, brought on board a, a design build team to advance the design of the project and start bringing some firmed up cost estimates to the project. So that's where we're at today. Um, the planning and design phase is moving forward. We hope to be at about 35% of that design by early in 2024. The plan is still to have the water treatment plant operational by sometime probably late in 2026. And what kind of security does having the second water treatment plant bring the area? That's a, another great question. And, and the right size for this plant, the right location for it, and finding the, the highest value in terms of what the, the cost will be have been the, the big questions for our board and, and for the community. So the size of the current plant right now is anticipated to be about 6 million gallons per day. And the reason we landed on that size is because the indoor water usage in our communities right now is about five and a half million gallons per day in the wintertime. So that's the, the essential drinking, cooking, bathing, the essential water functions and needs for our community are right at about that five and a half to six million gallons per day. So we want this facility to, in a scenario where our current single source system may have an issue, whether it's an infrastructure issue, whether it's a, an issue with the Gunnison Tunnel, which is the only source for that water that we treat for our community today, or if it's a wildfire in the Gunnison Basin, this new facility will be designed to make sure that our region is never without water. How has the ongoing water crisis impacted your work? And that's one of those things with everything that's going around, going on in the Colorado River Basin and all of that discussion. Um, there's certainly greater and greater uncertainty about water supplies in the West. So from that perspective, it does make the work that we're doing a little bit easier for our communities to understand why it's so important and why it's so important to do now. Um, from a, a local perspective, one of the important parts of this project is that it's not talking about bringing in and developing new water rights. It's going to draw upon water rights that all of the Project 7 members currently own, water that's held in the Ridgeway Reservoir. And that water is currently accessed today through trades and exchanges. But this new facility will give all of our members direct access to water rights that they already own. So that is a good thing with everything that's going on in the broader context of water in the West. How does Project 7 fit into our area's conservation efforts, or does it? Is that a completely separate conversation? I would say that with managing our essential natural resources, especially water, that it takes regional cooperation. And so Project 7 and its members certainly want to be good stewards of, of the water resources that, that we hold and making sure that we're working with our partners to understand why this project is needed and at the same time balance all of the other um, environmental interests is really, really important. So one of the things we've been looking at that ties back to the water rights that are going to be used for this facility being water that's already held by our members is that by taking it from Ridgeway Reservoir and modeling what it would do to reservoir levels 
and the in-stream flows in the river, our initial modeling is showing that there is no mitigation that will be required and that the existing conditions will be almost exactly the same. So we're in the process right now of doing what they call an environmental assessment that looks at all of the different environmental considerations for a project like this. And we anticipate that document to be ready early next year for public comment. So that will show all of our partners, um, including conservation groups, um, what the impacts of this project will be and how we're going to manage um, all of those important environmental considerations. You recently this week actually held another open house for the project at the site. What are examples of some feedback that you heard from the community during this open house? This is the, the second community open house. We've been doing one every year working with our, our partners and our members. And we had a really good turnout at the, the site of the proposed treatment plant. We've got a big full barn out there and um, had some great discussions with our community last night. I would say one of the biggest themes we heard is that this is an important project. There's an understanding for why that it's need, why it is needed. Um, but the big question for all of us is, how do we pay for it and how do we deliver it in a way that delivers maximum value for, for all of our members? So that is why the phase that we're entering now of design, build, and looking for where we can add the most value, where we can save the most cost. That's going to be um, the issue that we're really focused on. So it was good to hear from our communities that there's an understanding of why the project is needed, how important it is, and that we all need to work together to understand how we pay for it and, and deliver the maximum amount of value. What are some examples of ways that you're looking to save money in some areas or maximize funding in others? That's a, a great question. And this project is actually three pretty substantial capital projects all wrapped into one. You've got, of course, the drinking water treatment facility itself, but you also have the, the raw water pipeline taking water from the Ridgeway Reservoir to the facility. And then once that water is treated on site, the third project would be to have a raw water or a finished water line, excuse me, the, the water that's already been treated and is finished and ready for drinking by our customers out into the distribution system. So you've essentially got the treatment facility and two pipelines, each of which would represent a, a major capital project on its own. So looking at them all together, there's some opportunities to phase elements of the project, like the finished water line, to build some of those facilities later as needed and save some, some upfront costs. There's also, when we're looking at different treatment types, some ways to, to save some, some money there. And without getting into a lot of technical information, one thing we're looking at is if you're driving south of Kelowna and looking to the west and you see up on the hillside there at our site, we've got a big green pole barn that's already there today. And so we're looking at how can we use that structure for some treatment facilities and things like that to, to bring the costs down. So our design team is looking at all the options bringing them to the board so we can make smart decisions about where we can um, save some costs and save some money without decreasing value. And is there anything else you'd like to add? I didn't think to ask you. You know, Cassie, I would just say in some that water, water is life. And no matter who you are and where you are, if you don't have water, you don't have anything. So that's why we're pursuing this project and, and believe that after 40-plus years of planning, it's, it's time to uh, deliver on this important piece of infrastructure. 
You can learn more about the Project 7 Water Authority and the proposed water treatment plant at project7water.org. Next, we turn to the Forest Stewards Youth Corps with the Mountain West News Bureau's Emma Vandenindy. The land and its waterways have long been sacred to Indigenous people, and they know how to care for it well, considering the land used to be theirs. Now, some groups are recruiting Indigenous youth to restore and protect these areas. Emma visits a pueblo in New Mexico to see how one crew is doing just that. Just cut loose branches, any low-hanging branches. It's a hot, sunny morning in Jemez Pueblo. Alan Baca, a crew member from the Forest Stewards Youth Corps, is giving instructions for their project at a trailhead near a red rock formation. Yeah. The site is going to be uh, anywhere within the grounds. Don't worry about those ones out, outside the boundaries. They start cutting and sawing. Branches overflow in their pickup truck bed. But Baca makes sure they take care of every tree. Sam, if you want to head down to that tree right there, and just prune that one, and me and Mel are going to go around collecting. Behind each branch is a lesson to these indigenous youth about giving back. It's not just for the benefit of me, it's for the benefit of the community and then our future as well, our future kids and our future governors. The Youth Corps Summer Program is for 15 to 25-year-olds like Baca. Five crews across New Mexico are trained on natural resource careers, all while restoring the land. The Jemez Pueblo crew, which joined in 2020, is the only one on indigenous land. For a little over two months, they work on a variety of projects, like thinning forests to slow wildfires or removing invasive trees by streams. One of their projects is by Jemez Springs. On the side of a cliff is an image of a woman wearing a shawl, which is spiritually important to the Jemez people. Baca says work like this is much more than cutting down trees. We just have deep connections with our own lands as well. And taking care of your land just feels like you're just taking care of, you know, yourself as well. There are other indigenous conservation groups in the Mountain West, like Ancestral Lands Conservation Corps. Their crews work on habitat restoration projects on tribal lands in New Mexico, Arizona, and Wyoming. But Chaz Robles, the director of Ancestral Lands, says recruitment has been challenging. Along with factors like low pay, there's another barrier, trauma. Indigenous people used to inhabit and manage these lands, but the federal government forced them onto reservations. And that history hasn't always been acknowledged in natural resource jobs. To totally ignore the indigenous people who inhabited those lands, it's a huge injustice. Still, conservation is interwoven into indigenous teachings, and they know how to care for the land. A 2021 study showed that indigenous managed lands accounted for protecting about 85% of the world's biodiversity. Robles says investment in youth training programs is critical. So reconnecting those young folks to those places and spaces is a really powerful opportunity for those young folks to, to really find a passion for the outdoors and the lands and the waters that their ancestors uh, inhabited. And that passion is being pursued. 30 people from Jemez Pueblo have already gone through the Youth Corps programs. And of the 23 people who served on all of the crews this summer, 12 said they are pursuing or plan to pursue a career in natural resource management. Kyla Magdalena had a similar experience. She expected to go to work straight out of high school until she fell in love with tree plot planning. It was kind of like a scavenger hunt because <laughs> they would just give you like the map and the coordinates. Now, she wants to study geographic information systems. That really inspired me to like, 
I plan to get my degree and come back to the community and help out with, with land. That's paramount for people like John Galvan, the tribal forest manager for Jemez Pueblo. He says the work doesn't get done without the trainees' help. He gives them all the same advice. Go out and explore the world. I will see what's out there and get your education, but do come back again to help our people, our community, our landscape. Galvan hopes that more indigenous people will take up conservation and use their knowledge of the land to help preserve it for years to come. That's what it comes down. What are we leaving up for our future generations? So it's great to have these kids that are interested right now. Hopefully we can direct them to become foresters again, um, well, hydrologists or any, uh, any ideologists uh, again. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Emma Vandenaydi. You've been listening to Local Motion, a weekly KVNF production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. Thanks for joining us today, and a special thanks to Steve Hale and Miles Graham for contributing to today's episode. For KVNF, I'm Cassie Knust. <laughs>